Welcome back to Invisible Machines. Today, Rob and I are really excited to bring you a conversation with Jonathan Frankel, who's the chief scientist at Mosaic ML. This one's pretty exciting because I think it's, it's shaping up to be part of a larger series. We're thinking about three parts, probably, kind of about knowledge management. Um, and in this episode, well, Rob, I can let you talk because I know you were really excited to kind of dig into <laughs> some of the science with the scientists. So what were you excited yeah. to, to talk about with him? Um, this is sort of the front, I'd say the front, you know, front end working backwards, right? So we're going to, you know, really unpack knowledge management, which is our hope over these, uh, three episodes. Um, I think we start at the, at the very front, which is the presentation layer, like the interaction, the language model. Um, and this is kind of the, where we've seen most of the innovation lately. So the large LLMs and um, and should you create your own? Uh, should you use a large one? Or I think what we'll all learn it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. And what part, you know, what parts of 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 which? How how much of each part should we use? And uh, what ingredients are out there? So I think I'm super excited because this guy's on the cutting edge. Um, he's right on the front. He's you know inner circle. So um, really talking about um, an approach to, you know, how to create your own um, language model and, and then a little bit about, you know, where we think that's going uh, and how that fits into the overall knowledge management, you know, ecosystem. Um, so, yeah, I think this is, this is an exciting episode because it's really the, the part that's least understood at the moment and, and the most you know, popularized in the media right now. Yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. And, and Mosaic does some really cool stuff in terms of kind of creating these customized uh, LLMs mm-hmm. for businesses. Yeah. And um, as he explains to us, it really involves a lot of like, I guess we were calling it data mixology throughout the episode. Like it's, right. it's really about kind of trial and error in some cases, trying to figure out like mm-hmm. how much of each data set do you need? Like how yeah. specific does your training need to be? So. Yeah, this is a fun one. It really helps you understand the the really large language models like GBT and put them into context, right? I think it's like the beginning of of trying to to compartmentalize these ideas so that you can start putting them into a strategy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's kick it over to Jonathan right now. Let's do it. Hey, just wanted to hop in here really quick and let you know that this conversation that we're about to bring you with Jonathan Frankel was recorded before Mosaic ML was acquired by Databricks uh, for $1.3 billion. So you're not going to hear us talking about that, but what you will hear is a lot of great information about the work that they do over at uh, Mosaic ML and just about LLMs in general and the different ways they can be trained. Fascinating talk. Excited to bring it to you right now. By the way, the plants, like it's not just the background, it's the fact that your plants are so healthy. Uh-huh. Like there's That's a green been a, something going on there. It's been a very steep learning curve, I will say that. But I got a nice bright window over there and the plants seem incredibly happy. Yeah. Just just like all your models, I assume. <laughs> uh, most of them. <laughs> not all of them. You always have a few unhappy models. <laughs> I just need more sunshine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, if only more sunshine on solar panels and a lot of solar panels and a lot of watts. Oh, totally. um, we can talk about power usage of these GPUs at a later date. 
Well, it's yeah, interesting yeah. that you mentioned that because, uh, you know, Rob and I were having a conversation yesterday uh, about um, the kinds of LLMs and the kind of training and alignment that you're working on. And the, the efficiency is really impressive. Just the, the fact that you, you don't need the billions of parameters necessarily that, that maybe we, we thought you did to kind of uh, complete these uh, computations. It kind of just struck me, but um, yeah, it brings up like a question in my mind, which is, I got my own opinion on this, but uh, people thought that computation was so far away from being able to like truly write a good essay. And, and so then they see like, oh my God, no, computation isn't so far away. Um, but was it ever computation or was it that essays were a lot easier to write than we gave it credit for? So this is... I don't know. This is the view that I personally come around to. You can call it cynical if you want. Maybe chat GPT is really smart, or maybe we as humans are really just a lot more heuristic and a lot less smart than we think we are. (laughs) Um, You know, maybe we're just next word predictors as well. And we're just, you know, spouting sequences of words that seem to make sense together. And sometimes they form coherent thoughts. And a lot of the time, they're just sequences of words that sound really good. Mm -hmm. I could kind of go either way on that. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe this says more about us than it does about the models. Right. Yeah, maybe we thought we were more complicated than we are, um, and and maybe that's okay. Who said we have to be complicated? Why is that a good no. thing? Why are we stuck on that anyway? <laughs> it wouldn't be the first time. I don't know. I, there's there's so much literature on this. I think like a few years ago, I used to work on the policy around police use of facial recognition, and I learned way more than I ever wanted to know about facial recognition and the psychology of it. But one of the things that was so interesting to me was people's confidence in their ability to tell facial matches versus their actual performance. Mm. And just the number of built-in heuristics we have in our minds to, or in our brains to do that. Um, And, you know, our confidence is completely disconnected with our actual performance. We're biased. We're good at recognizing people who look like us. Um, It takes special training to actually be able to do facial recognition consistently, accurately. Um, But we sure think we're good at it because we see lots of faces, right? Right. So I, I kind of wonder if, you know, we're in a similar world with LLMs right now. Maybe we think that human speech and human writing really is a lot more sophisticated than it than it is under the hood. Right. And it's going to take it's going to take uh, some computational model to show us like how many times we actually walk past a friend without recognizing them. Uh, and then maybe maybe that'll show us how bad we are at it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there are great studies of like passport recognized or like passport agents whose whole job is to do facial recognition and how well they do versus how well they do after they've gotten some training and some awareness of their own weaknesses, it makes a huge difference. Got it. Yeah, it seems to be like human mistakes are, you know, are, are, are much, much more tolerable than machine mistakes. I, I'd put it a little differently, actually. I've been thinking about this a bunch. Um, you know, when it comes to self-driving cars, let's suppose they do have a lower, you know, lower accident rate, lower fatality rate than human drivers. Why isn't that enough? Um, And, you know, I think you can say it's human control, but I actually think it's predictability. Mm -hmm. That suppose self-driving cars made the the exact same mistakes humans did. Suppose they, you know, they got into more crashes at night, in the snow, when they were drinking. Well, I guess (laughs) self-driving cars can't drink, but I mean, you know, human drivers are... Uh, I mean, yeah, maybe that's the next big thing. There are ways to uh, make you know, sure. Now. <laughs> but, you know, the thing that would scare me most about a self-driving car is the inexplicable way that it might mistake the bus in front of me for a cloud and rear-end it. Mm-hmm. A mistake a human would never make. Mm. It's yeah. the unpredictability, the fact that I don't have a mental model. 
right. of when a self-driving car is going to work and it isn't going to work that I think makes it really scary, at least for me personally. Maybe I'm just a Luddite at this point and all the kids younger than me are just going to hop in their self-driving cars and feel totally fine with it. But I kind of imagine it's a similar challenge for AI where right. at least with humans, we kind of, we know the biases, we know the, the pitfalls when you're dealing with a human. With the language models, you know, it's going to inexplicably get some details wrong in a circumstance you really don't want it to. And it's really hard to know when that's going to happen or to have a good mental model of that. I think it that's, matters. Yeah, I, I, I kind of, I'm with you there. I kind of agree. I think there's like, it's this idea that when, when you expect one thing to happen and something else happens, it just freaks us out. And, um, and we're not, we're, we're never going to be comfortable with that. Uh, and, and there's degrees, it's not black and white, right? There's degrees of, of expecting and accounting for it. And so, so it's this idea that these unexpected negative surprises, you could almost say, I don't remember who said it, but somebody said unhappiness, you know, sadness is unexpected negative things. Um, and, and so, yeah, if it's unexpected and negative, it will make us unhappy and we just don't want to be unhappy. So we need predictable things <laughs> around us. So it's all about maybe, and maybe that's it. Maybe that's why modeling machines after humans makes more sense than most of us in this industry think, because the more they do behave like humans, the more familiar and predictable they become to us. And therefore we get more comfortable, even if it I mean, may be did... logically unsound. Yeah. I mean, why did chat GPT blow up and not DaVinci 003, which was right. a very similar model 100%. that did instruction following? I think it was the chat interface. Like opening, I got the UX right. Like yeah. for those of us in the space, ChatGPT was not a quantum leap the way mm -hmm. it looks like in the public sphere, but it looks yeah. like a quantum leap because everybody found out about this stuff for the first time. But that happened because it was natural. I mean, my yeah. friends at Character AI are doing a really awesome job building chatbots. And I think, you know, there's a lot of power to that. Yeah. So it's human-centered design is still a thing even in the AI age. And we need to think really carefully about like, you know, both the positive, like how can we make systems that humans work with well, that humans feel comfortable with in cases where it's good, but also the dangers of this. I mean, you know, you thought fake news was bad in 2016 <laughs> um, when you have AI systems that can really personalize yeah. and that can really generate compelling content, you know, human-centered design can also be an exploit. Yeah, I heard, I heard somebody say this recently and it, it resonated with me. I haven't quite totally decided where I land on it, um, but they said for a lot of the immediate challenges around you know, social media and generative AI, that it's more of a social media problem than it is a generative AI problem. In other words, fake news is fake news. Now, the fact that fake news is easier to create doesn't change the fact that the problem underlying this is the fact that we don't know the difference between a real person online and a fake person online. And and it just making that easier doesn't change that the underlying issue is social media, actually. Um, now, there are long-term dangers. I don't want to say there aren't other concerns, but what, what do you think about that, that perspective? I, I think it goes deeper than that. I think social media, in some sense, is its own exploit of, you know, of human weaknesses. I mean, we've, we've been talking about this for years now, that, you know, algorithms are being designed to exploit you know, all of our habits, all of our, you know, all of our weaknesses, getting us hooked, 
you know, just keep scrolling, you know, one more story, one more video, one more this. Um, so, you know, using AI to generate, you know, content that becomes popular in social media is just now, you know, it's kind of stacking, you know, stacking an algorithm that can be optimized on top of an algorithm that's already optimized to exploit humans. Um, right. You know, again, I think, you know, to keep on that theme, the story of AI is really the story of us. And, you know, in some sense, we're looking in a mirror, both the good and the bad. Um, you know, we're seeing ourselves in these models and we're seeing a lot of really nasty stuff about ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I could tell you some of the things I've seen in the data sets or some of the things <laughs> yeah. that people have entered into these models. Um, uh-huh. It's not pretty. But also, you know, we can, it's a powerful tool for good if we think about this as human augmentation and, you know, as built to help people be their best selves. And it's a really dangerous tool if we think about it as how do we exploit people? And it really yeah. depends who you are and, you know, what you're trying to get accomplished. Yeah. But it's really about us, not about the AI. Well, and the, yeah. the conversational interface is like a double-edged sword too, right? It it's, it's, makes it increasingly easier for people to interact with machines and leverage them in these really impressive ways. But then it also uh, disarms us a bit. Um, we, we instantly want to like it and believe everything it says. So we're up against that yeah. as well. Oh, yeah. yeah. it's I mean, it's dangerous in that respect. You're completely right. Uh, so... I want to go back to one topic you discussed, which is to to many of us, this has been incremental, right? We've chat GPT represented a leap to, to, to most people, but to any people watching closely, it was, it it was just a UI in front of something that was already happening. It was like a window. Someone finally put a window, you know, in the subway and we realized like, wow, (laughs) This thing's moving, <clears throat> um, and 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 so they mark that moment. But from your opinion, how far have we come from 2012? Like from there, sort of that moment of deep learning, and you know how how much has it evolved? Oh, it's it's evolved a ton. I mean, it's it is miraculous in many ways that just taking a ton of parameters and a ton of data and stirring them for a while produces chat GPT or produces, you know, stable diffusion or produces, you know, you name it, I'm sure it'll be out tomorrow. The fact that this works is a miracle that I don't think anyone could have guessed. The people who guessed it were probably crazy and insane. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah. I don't know whether they were brilliant or lucky, but certainly in the same way that the folks at OpenAI, brilliant or lucky, guess that making it really, really big would make it more powerful and you'd end up with chat GPT. That's also a little bit miraculous. Like yeah. it was a completely ridiculous thing that nobody thought would work. I certainly right. in, in the academic community at that time, I was like, GPT two, 1.5 billion parameters. What's the point? Like, what are they going <laughs> to do next? Make it a hundred billion parameters. And then they did. And then it got better. What are they going to do, yeah. do next? Make it a trillion parameters. And they did. And it's GPT four. Um, yeah. But the fact that they believed that, and there were some crazy people who saw it through, you know, yeah. in many ways, this is, like this is the epitome of kind of open science and yeah. open-ended science. Give a lot of really smart people, you know, a little bit of freedom, let them go crazy. And if one of those bets mm-hmm. pays off, society changes forever. You get the internet, you get, I don't know, yeah. I mean, pick your scientific breakthrough, you get relativity. Um, in this case, you get deep learning as a really important, interesting tool. It's yeah. kind of a great statement about the nature of science. It is. We, we were just talking with Seth Godin and... He was talking about how so many of the things that, you know, that are breakthroughs or, or, you know, amazing discoveries 
are accidental um, in their nature. Uh, and, and a lot of it is like kind of almost circling back to our earlier point. Uh, many times people did something like, uh, he was referring to like um, songwriting and stuff like that too. Like many of the artists uh, wrote a song, thought it was going to be the next hit and it wasn't. Um, and then wrote a song that didn't think it was going to do anything. And that became a song that changed a whole generation and a culture. <laughs> um, and, and of course we always credit people with like having foreseen that, right. When really they just found a hundred dollar bill in the laundry in their pocket and they're like, Whoa, <laughs> cool. <laughs> but, but they did check the pockets so they get credit for that. Right. <clears throat> um, yeah. What, what's the uh, saying that luck favors the prepared? Right. Right. That's, that's good. That's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm an incrementalist when it comes to science. I'm not a big believer in breakthroughs or paradigm shifts. I'm right. a believer that, you know, we spend a very long time preparing for things and, you know, you need some crazy people who really believe in something irrationally to kind of push it the last step. But, yeah. you know, science proceeds incrementally. I, yeah. I hate these ideas that like, you know, AI happened all at once. It didn't. This was a lot of people working really hard for a long time. Yeah, um, yeah we have that and, tendency too to like celebrate individual practitioners or breakthroughs when really it's, it's like this ongoing team effort of just building upon everyone else's work. Yeah. yeah the, the fun of science is getting to be at the party. Yeah. Like, yeah. I don't know if my work's going to end up being, you know, looked back on as important, but it's really cool to have been here at this time, you know, helping to helping to move the field forward. And I'm, you know, I'm enjoying the party. It's great. Yeah. Like it's, it's fun to what be in a place where science is happening. I agree. When you go back to that moment that, you know, I guess, I, I wasn't there. I don't even know if the moment happened, but there was a moment where, you know, OpenAI walks in and says, hey, you know, if you can give me a billion dollars, I have an idea. I think if we capture enough text on the internet, this will be a miraculous outcome. And Microsoft said, sure, uh, I'll let you try it. Um, how many people could have pulled that off, do you think? I think getting that kind suppose, of funding. So, you know, it's important to get the chronology right here a little bit. So from what I, from what I recall, um, you know, OpenAI was, you know, a, you know, a research lab for a while. They were doing a lot of different things. They had cool reinforcement learning work that was happening. They had really cool interpretability work that was happening. Like, you know, and GPT and GPT-2 were kind of, you know, a couple of small weird projects. There were some scientists working on scaling laws. And then GPT-3 happened. And if, if I understand correctly, it was a very small team that did that because um, it was just one project among many and they just kind of took it to an extreme and wanted to see what would happen. And the answer is amazing things happened. And at that point, OpenAI kind of, a lot changed about OpenAI at that point in time. They, you know, they became a for-profit entity, um, which, you know, from what I understand, burned quite a few people along the way because people have been collaborating as if they were more of a nonprofit. Um, they basically abandoned all other work happening at OpenAI. A lot of people left. That's where Anthropic came from. Mm -hmm. um, and then they started taking investment from Microsoft. So chronologically, you know, they already had the goods in some sense. They had already shown that there was a path open with GPT-3. Um, if you had gone back in time and told a lot of people at that moment, you know, 2019, 2020, like, hey, just train a 175 billion parameter language model and 300 billion tokens of, you know, text <laughs> scrape from the web. It'll be really cool. Um, and you had said, like, you know, I'm from the future and I promise this will work. Um, there were, you know, a lot of places could have pulled this off, but it's still a really hard thing to do. And we have to give a lot of respect, not only to the people who do it today, but the fact that they pulled this thing off 
years ago, the libraries were worth worse, the frameworks were worse, yeah. the tools were non-existent, the hardware was worse at that time, and the fact that they pulled it off at all was an achievement in its own right. I mean, the fact that they were crazy enough to do it is really, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't know whether that was good or bad. Um, I yeah. hope I have some crazy enough to do it moments in my career <laughs> like that. But, you know, it was also a technical achievement that, you know, there were other people in the world that could have done it, but not very many. Yeah. How much can you tell, like, when you look at the quality of the writing, um, so the quality of the prediction, uh, which is like, you know, probably a, due in part to like the embeddings and stuff. How much can you tell about the data that they ingested from the output? Um, meaning if you just inject, ingested data from like Reddit, how, like could it output this high quality essay, right? Um, in other words, what can we tell about the kind of data they they ingested? Was it mostly professional writers, um, or was it, you know, high school kids? It's a great question, and it's kind of you know, there are a few steps involved. I think it's important to remember that even in this age of really large language models, the rules of machine learning still apply. Mm -hmm. If you train a model on a certain kind of data, it's going to be better at that kind of data. Um, so if you train it on a bunch of Reddit. You're, you're literally, your objective function is to tell the model, like, create text that looks like Reddit. If right. you train it on a website that has a bunch of ads, it's going to output fake ads. You've even seen with the Bing model that it sometimes makes up URLs for references because it's mm -hmm. trained to have URLs for references. Like, <laughs> it, there's nothing wrong with the model. It's just we, we told it to do that, and it's doing it. Right. So, you know, to a first approximation, what you put into the model is what you'll get out. Um, if you put in a bunch of Reddit, it's going to be really good at Reddit. If you put in a bunch of medical data or scientific papers, it's going to be really good at scientific papers. That was Galactica that came out about a year ago. Um, you know, there were other challenges with the model. I think, you know, certain people at fair at Facebook, um, over promised on it, but it was still an extraordinarily good scientific model that was, it got pulled because it was pretty bad at lots of non-scientific things, including being a little racist. Um, mm -hmm. but it was a really good scientific model, at least as far as I played with it, because it was trained on a bunch of scientific papers. But when you ask it right. to do things outside of that, it's going to be worse. So that's the first step. But keep in mind that training a model is a long process that involves the pre-training. Then you, you, know, you do some instruction fine-tuning typically to kind of get it to be an instruction follower. You know, when you say to the model, like, you know, if you said to the raw model, give me a recipe for vegan banana bread, it's going to say, you know, and also, can you give me a recipe for icing? And also, <laughs> right. you know, the yeah. guests are coming in two hours. Once you do the instruction <laughs> fine tuning, it'll actually start to output the recipe. It'll treat that input. It'll kind of bend the model to treat its input as an instruction to follow. Um, and then you do the reinforcement learning with human feedback or kind of other polishing processes to really like hone the nature of the model's outputs. And that is an interesting process. It seems to have, we don't really understand it very well beyond that it does, you know, improve model quality according to humans. But then again, you're literally training the model using feedback from humans. So it better improve the quality according to humans. That's right. literally what you're telling the model to do. Machine learning laws are still in effect. Um, but it has a lot of weird other effects. Like it could take a Reddit model and make it sound a lot clearer because, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to basically have a bunch of humans slowly telling it, hey, I actually don't prefer text that looks like Reddit. And it'll, it'll bend to that. But you'll also end right. up in a place where, in some sense, it may kind of, it's known to hurt the calibration of the model. That is to say, you know, the the probability the model puts in each token no longer corresponds with how often that token shows up in the data. Um, it'll right. kind of, it'll really, like, bend the model into some specific behaviors. 
Um, it also gets a model that's really good at telling us what we want to hear, um, right. which is either good or bad, depending on the context. So right. at the end of the day, the, you know, to answer your question with a very, very long discussion, um, if you just train it raw on Reddit and don't do those other steps, yeah, it's going to get you a bunch of Reddit-like text and your, your essay is going to look like a Reddit conversation. Um, right. It may, in fact, have multiple usernames that pop up and all sorts of other stuff that happens. Um, but as you do that other polishing stuff, you can, you can take a model that, you know, might not be perfect initially and make it look pretty good. I don't know whether you'd actually right. make it pretty good, but it'll sure look pretty good. It'll feel good. Right. So it can be a little like, like a recipe, like cooking, you know, um, you don't just want scientific papers, perhaps maybe you don't have enough data that is just scientific papers, but you want a little of something else and a little of something else. And then you put it together and then, like you said, fine tune it with some human feedback and and ultimately get something that's more aligned to what you're hoping for. Um, so, so let me give you, I want to give you a question here. I want to yeah. quiz you. Yeah. I love doing it. this exercise. When I, when I give guest lectures, I love doing this. I could give you a list of all the data sets I have because data mixing is a very tricky problem. What, right. How do you get the, the proportions right of these different data sets? Mm -hmm. so let me tell you, I've got, I got some scientific data, like, you know, good quality scientific papers. I've got a bunch of code from GitHub, all properly licensed, I promise. <laughs> um, I have a big scrape of text from the web. You know, it's just, it's a bunch of web text. I can guarantee yeah. you it's in English and I did an okay job filtering out JavaScript and other weird stuff. It is pretty much text. Um, and let's say I've got Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. Those are, those are your, your four data sets. I got some code, some science, Wikipedia and text from the web. And I'm going to tell you one more thing, which is that higher quality data, the scientific papers in Wikipedia are pretty scarce. Um, if you want to train a model on that, you got to look at it a bunch of times. You're going to see the same data over and over again. The web text and the code, I got lots of that. So we can, you know, I can give you as much as you want. How, what proportions do you pick? Give me, mm. give me your proportions for those four data sets. Put it together for me. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, you have to have some objective. Um, that's a good question. How do you know how the data sets affect your objective? How do you know how this choice is going to affect the outcome? Yeah, trial and error. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. So what, what what would you pick? Give me give me your best guess. What does your gut tell you? Ooh. We're talking percentages here? Yeah, yeah, give me some percentages here. Okay. So let's go with equal percentages of all. Okay, equal percentages of all. So I'm gonna tell you that the problem baseline. here is that you're it's a baseline. It's a good place to start, yep. but you're going to see a lot of code for a model that might get used just for text. Um, mm -hmm. And also one problem is Wikipedia is pretty small compared to the web. You're going to have to look at all the data in Wikipedia, let's say five to 10 times. You're going to have to go through it repeatedly. And duplication can be risky because the model may just memorize that data. So, you know, I don't know, going equal, there seems to be some risk there. Was well, there a problem yeah. too with like the, the data in Wikipedia always kind of morphing and changing and maybe not being accurate all the time? Um, maybe, but honestly, it's a lot more accurate than what you're going to pull off of the web scrape. Yeah. It's probably the most accurate data you've got. Um, so yeah, it's curated. you do the best you can. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. curated. So yeah. And the Wikipedia project has a really, really good system and a good history with somehow managing to take a completely open editable, you know, encyclopedia and actually make it pretty factual. Like mm -hmm. right. that, that is, I think one of the great achievements of the 21st century. Um, yeah. but this is, this is a fun exercise. Like this is what I did this spring for our mosaic models that we released. 
Um, I was the data mix master um, because I, <laughs> you know, or the mixologist or take your pick here. Um, <laughs> Let's go with mixologist. And the, you know, I had to make these choices. I wanted to do it myself partially because if I screwed up, it was on me and not on my team. Um, so, you know, this one, I wanted to make sure that if my CEO was going to yell at somebody over this, he was going to yell at me. But this was really hard. And it wasn't just four data sets. It was a couple dozen um, right. of varying quality and quality that's hard to tell because you obviously can't read all the data. Yeah. Um, right. And I had to figure out how to make calls here. How did you deal what? with your test, test data? Um, did you, was it more about keeping it consistent uh, so that you had a, you know, a baseline or, or was that a big problem from a complexity standpoint? Were you, were you changing your test data to like calibrate your models as you made changes? Like how did you, how, how did you baseline this thing? So have you looked at the test data for, for what we actually use for large language models? Have you read the test data? Cause I think this is like, the, the point that I, I've, I hope to get to is it all comes back to how you measure. It all comes back to how you evaluate these models. Okay. If I want a model that's going to do really well at the LSAT, I need to do something completely different than I would want to, if I want a model to be really good at code. And I'm going to read you off. I want to ask you all two more questions. I'm going to have fun yeah. with this. Yeah. Um, yeah. These are actual questions that we, you know, that we ask the model. Um, these, are, these are the most popular benchmarks I know of for evaluating these models academically. And then I'm going to ask you, you know, these are really cool benchmarks. I will say right up front, like the people who created these are awesome. Mm -hmm. But, you know, do these reflect what you're looking for? So I'm actually going to share my screen if that's okay. And I can read this off so we have it on audio. But, you know, let me, yeah, yeah. Let me find the, see if I can track this down. Where did I put that tab? Um, okay, so let's start with this one. Um, so this is a benchmark called Helleswag. Um, this is by an amazing research group at the University of Washington. They're fantastic. This is a common sense reasoning task. So I want to, let's look at this first question here. So here's the question. It's a multiple choice question. You need to complete the sentence. A woman is outside with a bucket and a dog. The dog is running around trying to avoid a bath. She does which of the following? And you can look through the responses here, but I'll give you, I'll give you one of them that I'll read out and then you can take a look at the rest and try to answer this one. You know, a, she rinses the bucket off with soap and blow dries the dog's head. <laughs> B, she uses a hose to keep it from getting soapy. C, she gets the dog wet, then it runs away. Or D, she gets into the bathtub with the dog. <laughs> this is how we're evaluating language models academically. It's a fantastic benchmark for common sense reasoning. Which of these makes more sense? Mm -hmm. But I think I'll tell you, it's probably not how people use, you know, chat GPT. Right. Yeah. That's fascinating. So yeah. So this is, you know, it's important to, you know, when we talk about testing, it's not enough just to, you know, think about, well, you've got some benchmarks and did you do better? Or like, look at these leaderboards and say, ah, the Alpaca Wizard V5 is better than the Vicuna, you know, Superhero V12, um, 30B or whatever. Look at what you're measuring. Are you measuring the things you care about? And I don't think we're doing that right now in the academic world and in the open source world. So until we know what we're measuring, making that choice as to which data proportions you should use how the hell are you supposed to know? Um, and I certainly, I tried to make reasonable choices, but at the end of the day, I kind of put my hands up in the air and said, like, I don't know. I don't trust the metrics to tell me everything about whether this model is going to be good. So let me try to de-risk, make choices similar to what other people made. Let me try to make sure I've got good diversity and, you know, say a prayer that my CEO doesn't fire me when all said and done and I spent a lot of right. money. <laughs> or, or like, 
OpenAI, you crowdsource it afterwards. <laughs> you, you crowdsource it and you really hope that you didn't screw it up. Yep. <laughs> um, like humans are the best way to evaluate. If I could afford to pay enough people to just sit and evaluate my model, I would. But you still need to figure out, like, before you train the big one, you better make some good decisions. Um, because if OpenAI had trained GPT-4 and then all the humans had said, yeah, this sucks. Um, can you imagine? Like, that's tens or hundreds of millions of dollars down the drain and they got to start over again. Um, mm -hmm. So this is, I don't know, there, there are all sorts of metaphors out there. I think my favorite is, you know, the metaphor of making a chip. Like, yep. it is really, really expensive to get a chip made. And if there's a bug in that chip, um, you know, that is a hundreds of millions of dollars or billions of dollars mistake. There are a lot of processes in place to do it virtually, simulate it, work your way up, evaluate it. And eventually you get to the point where you say, you know, I'm going to make this chip and I'm going to say a prayer that, you know, I didn't make a mistake because this is going to cost me a lot of money if I did. Um, but you never know for sure. And this is even more unpredictable because it's unclear how the inputs really affect the outputs. It's unclear what weird little behaviors are looking within here. We saw with Bing, like it had Sydney mode. Um, who knew that, that was in there and that you yeah. could suss it out? Yeah. So as a mixologist, <laughs> a data mixologist, um, I, I can't help but think like there's, there's baking a chocolate cake and all the ingredients, like go get the flour and the salt. And, the, and then there's like the easy bake cake, right? Like most of the ingredients are already measured and you just get to add like a few ingredients to it. So it's 80% done and you add the last 20%, right? And take 100% yep. of the credit for, for the taste of the cake, which is a great, great algorithm for most people and for a very, uh, for a commercial product, right? <laughs> um, I, is there a world in which, in which, in, in mixology of data here, that 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 can exist where it's not like uh somebody has to start with coming up with all the raw materials but that you can have this like concept of an easy bake just add butter milk and water and to your liking right yeah i i think that's a great description for our business um you know what we do at mosaic ml is my job is to make you know I, I like this metaphor. My job is to provide, you know, the Betty Crocker baking mix for yep. making a cake. You're welcome to make it from scratch if you want, and good luck to you. But if you just want to stick in some water and an egg, um, you do need to bring the water and the egg. You know, you want to make this thing your own, and maybe, you know, you can choose the color of the sprinkles and, you know, what kind of icing you want. And maybe you can choose chocolate or, or white cake or, you know, what have you. But at the end of the day, giving people some clear choices that we know are going to succeed, that you can customize, but at least, you know, you know that even if you screw up the print on the, you know, on the icing and you've got bad handwriting, it's still going to taste good. Um, you know, it may not be the prettiest thing in the world, but it's still going to taste good. Right. That's what we do at Mosaic for large right. language and, models. And you get to experiment. It's, you know, you can, you can bake more than one cake, right? You can, hey, what happens if we add a little more sugar, add a little more, you know, water, milk? What if we substitute? But if you're going to do that, you may water. want to start with some cupcakes. I always recommend to my, my don't bake a cake first. Why don't you bake some cupcakes and ideally bake some mini cupcakes? Um, because quite frankly, you know, we we have a we have a checklist we give to our customers when they want to go and train a really expensive large language model with us. Mm -hmm. It's you know we don't say you have to use it, but we do say you know for best results. And if you want it to go right the first time when you bake that cake, follow this checklist. And the first thing is you know. Bake a couple mini cupcakes with different mixes of ingredients and kind of, you know, 
see if they taste taste your liking. Everybody's got different tastes. Everybody likes different flavors. Yeah. Let's make sure this for you and your business is going to make sense. Then, okay, let's make a couple cupcakes. Let's kind of verify <laughs> those choices. Okay, you found the one you really like. Cool, we'll bake the cake. Um, but along the way, we're providing the mix the entire time, and we're kind of holding your hand and walking you through. Um, and that's how, you know, your average big enterprise with one or two data scientists can train a 30 billion parameter language model and get something really good. Um, and I'm so face. proud of that. Somehow sitting here picturing you with a chef hat and a mosaic logo on it. <laughs> I should get one. I should really get one. This is the kind of stuff you can still get away with at a startup. If you ever become a big mature company. Just get an yeah. oversized, oversized wooden spoon for me because that's like going to sell it. <laughs> I'm so glad that, you know, we don't have finance people yet to look over exactly what I you know put on the credit card statement. I have been known for people who are really friends of Mosaic and do us big technical favors. I have been known to buy them custom swords. Because um, that's the kind of thing you can get away with at a startup. Honestly, awesome. it's been a big incentive for people to come help us. And if anybody's listening, and you, you know, if you do something valiant um, in service of Mosaic ML, you will get a sword with your name on it and our logo. Because um, you know, why send T-shirts? Yeah. yeah, swords are more fun. Now, is that Literally. a sharp sword? Is it ready, battle ready, or? It, it, my my lawyers and my HR people have told me to say that it is not sharp. Okay, um, <laughs> leave it so, at that. You know, I just want to make sure that I I remind you of that. Um, <laughs> It is not sharp, but it is, you know, it is great for putting on display within a glass case where nobody can get to it. Um, you know, my got to make my lawyers happy here. For sure. But, great. You know, so I can probably get away with the chef's hat. I bet nice. I can pull that off. Nice. So, all right. So for, I, I think a lot of folks on my team will be, will be wondering this. It's striking that balance between like, all right, when do you, when do you train the model? Like you said, like focus on the data sets and, and the mixology um, versus when do you like rely on something like a vector DB or some sort of vectorization technique versus when do you do it in prompting um, and steer it that way? And how do you like figure out and is it the same idea? Like you just mix again, you try different things and it's experimentation, but, but there's gotta be a framework for thinking about like, oh, yeah. when do you put it in the model? When do you focus on the, the you know, the, the sort of different approaches? So there are a couple factors at play here. Let's kind of take the two extremes first. If you're doing prompting, um, you're basically counting on the model to know everything that you know, or that you need it to know. You're counting on the model to already, you know, know about your business process, your industry, your area, because the prompt isn't really giving you much to go on. Um, you know, please tell me how to do intake on this client, you know, could mean very different things depending on whether you're a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, I don't know, you've, you run an auto shop or what have you. Um, so prompting can be powerful for general knowledge or for kind of basic data transformation tasks or things like that. It's really incredible that it works, but it is pretty limited if you need it to really know some stuff about a specific context that goes beyond that one prompt. On the other extreme is, you know, you actually train the model, you fine tune the model, or you even train it from scratch. Um, and that's when you have a lot of data. You do need quantity of data, but also where you need the model to really know some bespoke stuff about whatever you're working on. If you're doing something medical, you should probably put in a, a bunch of medical data. If you're doing something legal, you should put in some legal data. If you're a business where you're going to ask it questions about your business or about how your business is operating, that better be baked into the model somewhere. Otherwise, the model is not going to know about it. Um, then you get to this weird middle ground, which is you know putting things in a vector database and, and kind of appending it onto the prompt. 
or prepending it onto the prompt. Right. That's kind of it's this weird middle ground because the model isn't learning. That right. that knowledge it's is really not prompt the data. The engineering, model, right? I mean, it's just it, it's prompt, automated it's prompt, engineering, prompt, prompt engineering. Yeah, it is, but I wouldn't say like I wouldn't look at I wouldn't look down on that. No, um, no, like, no, no. You can call it automated right. prompt yeah. engineering, but it's it works. Yeah. I mean, it gets your data into the model. It's limited in how much data you can provide. It's unclear to us, you know, even, you know, we released a model with a 65K context length, Anthropic released one with a 100K context length. It's unclear whether the model can actually use that context length. Just because you can fit all that into memory doesn't mean the model is actually looking at everything and taking advantage of it. Um, so it's unclear, you know, you hit limits pretty quickly. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's not really baked into the reasoning processes of the model because you haven't trained on it. The model hasn't changed at all. You just have this data now sitting there. So for all those reasons, you know, it, it really depends on your scenario. And my usual answer to people is climb the ladder. If a simple prompt works, don't spend a million bucks training a model. Like that's not a good use of your money. If a vector database, you know, really truly solves your problem. Great. That's awesome. Like glad, glad you were successful. Um, if that doesn't, let's fine tune the model on your data a little bit, do a little bit of training. If that doesn't quite do it, okay, let's, you know, do a lot more training. If that doesn't do it, okay, maybe if you've got enough data, we got to train from scratch and then we start training bigger and bigger models. Yeah. But I, I encounter a lot of scenarios where someone wants a multilingual or bilingual model in two very specific languages. In that case, you probably do have to pre-train from scratch. Yeah. Um, you know, an English model is not going to cut it. Do you have a sense can... like if, um, oh, uh, it, just if in the near future, we might see more organizations kind of building their own language models from scratch or relying on maybe in industry-specific models, or if it might be like some combination where there are industry-specific data sets that are reliable within the medical industry that can then be kind of brought into something that's a little more bespoke. I think, you know, I think the answer is going to be yes. That's okay. been my experience so far when I interact with customers. Um, you know, you're an enterprise. GPT-4 is pretty amazing. It can do a lot of cool stuff. Mm -hmm. um, like it's an exciting model. It can answer a lot of general purpose questions, but it does not know about your business process. And given the questions around data security and privacy and whether that data is going right back into GPT-4 for training, um, perhaps it's not the best idea right now to send it your confidential internal data or any personal information or anything about your business processes or anything that you don't want to end up in that model or you don't want OpenAI and Microsoft to know. Um, you know, on the flip side, when, for that really for the crown jewels data, the crown jewels business processes, the things where you need to completely own the entire process, or you know, simply where you just have a lot of really specific data, yeah, we're seeing a lot of people train their own. So I think, you know, a lot of people ask me like, are companies choosing to work with you or OpenAI? The answer is yes. Right. Um, you know, a lot of folks are working with both, and that's great. Like, different sure. tools for different jobs. Yeah. Um, it kind of brings me to a question about. Uh, having enough data, having the right data, that data being formatted in the right way. Um, what do you think the trend is and the trend line here is for auto-generating data uh, versus like having the data? Like, do you have the data versus like generating, using other models to generate the data and then and and then training your own model from generated data? And and what mix... what as a mixologist, how would you like say is would you would you would you mix it? Would you like is that how viable is that? And and then how viable do you think that will be over time here as more and more like you know models exist? It's a great question. I think you know it touches on a bunch of scientific topics and some legal topics. I mean, for starters, you know I'm not a lawyer. I'll say that up front. 
but I do think you should chat with a lawyer before you try to get data out of a model that has terms of service attached to it. Um, Mm -hmm. Because you may find yourself in a bit of hot water. For example, you build a huge data set off of GPT-4 outputs, and then any model trained on that data set becomes, you know, a violation of the OpenAI terms of service. I can't say whether that's true or not because I'm not a lawyer, but, you know, there are legal considerations here as well. When it comes to generating synthetic data from a model, I have kind of two perspectives on this. One is the take that, you know, I find it, I would find it very surprising if you could use a worse model to improve a better (laughs) model. Like, I'm guessing you kind of have to, you know, this is a process of, you know, hand-me-downs in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if you were to pull from GPT-4, it's probably going to make your GPT-3 quality model a lot better. Um, but that's, you know, you better, there has to be a better model out there somewhere. You're not going to bootstrap your way all the way up just by generating data from the model. Um, the other piece to this is really the question of synthetic data and, you know, whether you can get good synthetic data. I kind of, I do wonder whether there will eventually be approaches where you can take an example and ask a model to write variations of it. And in that way, kind of, you know, bootstrap a little more variety into your examples. But at the end of the day, you are still constrained by the capabilities of the model you're using to do that process. If the model can't dream it up, your new model's not going to see it. So I'm kind of, I'm going to wait and see approach with these, this sort of stuff. It sounds really, really nice on paper, but, Mm -hmm. you know, honestly, I'm a scientist. I want to see the results. And I can see a lot of reasons if this completely crashed and burned, I think we could all come up with some good explanations as to why. So it's easy to say, you know, this might work, but you know, let's make the the counter argument and find out which hypothesis is true. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's probably like everything else. It's just, it's just an ingredient among many ingredients that depending on what you're going to do, you will put a little bit more or a little bit less. It, it may, f- I almost think of it as like, you know, that, the, the kinds of ingredients that are just just made to to add texture, you know, just filler, <laughs> you know, like like you said, variations on something. Um, but the idea has to be centered. Like, what is the idea? Um, that's important. Now, five ways to communicate the same idea. Maybe that doesn't matter um, as much. Uh, so that's that's interesting. Um, so. Large companies creating their own models so that it, it really is like um, having a domain. Uh, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say like, in a way you can think of it as context, right? It's providing models in, in context. Um, and the context is that specific business and the terms that that business uses and the words that means something to that person. It's it's like every business has its own language, even though it's using English words. A lot of those words have specific meaning in the context of that business. Um, and so once you have a, a good data set that describes those words in that context, then they're gonna come out in the right context. Is that, is that a really- I think that's right, but I'd go further than that, I think. The way that the way that my customers talk to me is kind of, you know, their data is their business in some sense, like mm-hmm. the trove of data they have. It's their institutional knowledge. It's their business secrets. It's their IP. It's, you know, it's it's everything like that. That is their whole business in a sense. When they train a model on that data, it is the crown jewels. Right. Um, it's the stuff they can't leak. It's what differentiates them from their competition. And a lot of the interest I hear in training these models is like, look, if I use GPT-4 and my competition uses GPT-4, 
I'm giving yeah, up the all the work that I've done on this data. What's the difference? Yeah. Like, yeah. who cares? Uh, suddenly, we're, we're both the same. Um, on the flip side, if I train a model on my data, all I'm doing is taking that identity and that data and putting it in a different form, a form that you know has pros and cons to it. It's not going to be exactly right all the time, but a form that I can interact with and a form that I can ask right. questions to and that can, you know, that can help me to automate processes. And that's, you know, I think that's pretty compelling. It's, yeah, it's exciting. Yeah. When, so I have a, a, a nerdy question here. Um, when I think about, uh, models and I think about, um, models trained on different languages, right? So, um, and, and whether those languages are coding languages or, you know, linguistics, um, there's this concept of like, when, when do you create a, a different model, you know, and when, when do you kind of expand on an existing model? And, and one way that I think about this is if I was using, you know, uh, like chat GPT, for example, and I wanted to know how to best connect to an API, a popular API out there. Um, and I asked it to write it in JavaScript, right? Um, I would get an answer that's probably uh, less likely to be as accurate as if I asked it to write it in, in a curl script. Uh, because curl is like a language designed for integrations, mm. right? And, and so hmm. I still have, I'm still getting the output, right? But I'm essentially like, um, I, so I'm still using one model, but by changing the language, I'm able to share that model in a sense, right? Um, versus I create a, another model on curl and a different model on JavaScript. Um, and, and I think the challenge is just like, now I can ask one model and, and not have to try to classify and distinguish, like, is this a curl question or is this a, a, a JavaScript question? Um, and so w when, when does it make sense to have multiple models and how could, how could you use multiple models in an effective way? And when, when, when do you just try to fit the model you have more broadly? So this is a great question. And I think this is kind of at the heart of this question of, you know, are we heading toward a world where we only have five models that kind of do everything or a world where we have a hundred thousand models, each of which mm -hmm. does something. And I think we're, you know, the answer is going to be yes. The answer to these things usually is, <laughs> well, it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Like it's never the extreme one or the other, but you're, you're asking a bunch of different questions here. And I think one, you know, one thing I'll point out is, are you really ever going to need a model that does curl? and Python, and C++, and, 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 or you're actually going to need a model that just kind of does one. And my experience has been that, you know, OpenAI and Anthropic and Google are trying to build one model that serves everybody, but there's nobody who needs all the capabilities that are in these models. These are very big, expensive models to run. And, you know, they're slower, they're really expensive to train, they're really expensive to use. Um, they're jacks of all trades and, you know, they're masters of many trades. I don't know if they're, they're masters of all of them either. Like they, you know, 
they may not be the world's greatest medical model, or you may have some proprietary data that could make your model better. What I tend to see is that, you know, it's going to be a world that fragments into both. There's going to be the chat GBTs in the world that can kind of do everything well. Um, but if you told me you wanted a code model and you told me you wanted it to run in real time and, you know, be able to do code completion for you, I would never use GPT-4. It's going to be too slow and it may not even be as good at code as a really small focused code model that's just trained on Python. So if you have a sense for what your purpose is out of these models or a sense for the kinds of things you may want to do with it, um, in a lot of cases, it is actually, you know, a lot faster to use a smaller specialized model and it can be a lot cheaper to train it too. Because, you know, the cost of using GPT-4 is pretty cheap, but it is not free. And especially the cost of getting a private instance of these models is really expensive compared to the cost of just training your own. It's, it's not that expensive to train your own, to be honest. Are, are, there way, are there steps that organizations can take now to future-proof these kind of things? Like if, if you start building your data set using GPT-4 and, and training there, are you then locked in or are there ways to kind of extract one model and then kind of plug in another one and connect some of the threads and, and, and get it running the way you want it? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you're dealing with something like GPT-4, there's no real way to connect the threads. You're kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, nobody gives you a copy of GPT-4, so you can't look inside it, you can't take it with you, you can't see what was inside it, and you can't take the outputs of it and use it to train another model that violates the terms of service as far as I can tell. Again, consult a lawyer, not a lawyer, have to say that. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that's part of the power of using an open source model. Mm. They're all, or even just using a custom model, you own it, you control it, you can see it, you can slowly move from one to the other. You can even use one model's outputs to train another model. Um, if you want to take a model that you really like and kind of distill it into another model, distillation is an awesome technique. That's a whole other conversation. Um, you can use different models for different purposes, or you can kind of, you know, pick and choose which models seem to be doing well at which tasks. So I don't know. Personally, I'm a big believer in open source and open science. Um, but I also think, you know, it just leads to a better situation. It gives you more flexibility and it avoids some of the lock-in. Moving away from right. GPT-4 may not be the most fun transition for folks because, you know, they can't take anything with them. Yeah. But, you know, you don't want to get locked in like that. Just one more thought here, kind of around that idea. You know, in the early days of the internet, a, a business had a website and it felt very often very separate from that business. But then we reached a point where the website kind of became the business, uh, at least to a lot of the consumers. And so... It's not hard to imagine that in the near future, a business will have a large language model of some sort, whether that's their own custom one or, you know, someone else's. But then does that eventually become the business, too? And I guess at that point, too, then then it becomes a lot more valuable if you if you own it. Right. Yeah. And I think that's one possible future. Um, I always hate predicting the future because I'm usually wrong, as are we all. Mm -hmm. um, otherwise, we'd have nuclear fusion and flying cars on the moon right now. Um, so I, I don't like to predict the future. And if you had asked a few years ago, people would say, well, your business isn't going to be a website. It's going to be, you know, talking to Siri. Mm -hmm. Well, your business isn't going to be a website. It's going to be something in a VR world. Um, you know, sometimes these things come to pass, sometimes they don't. So I don't like to make crazy predictions about that. But I do think AI is going to be a key part of how people interact with the business. Um, you know, the idea that your business, you can have a chatbot that can talk to thousands of people at any hour of the day and answer questions. That's awesome. Um, you know, that's something that, you know, unless you're maybe Amazon or one of a handful of really large companies, it's just something you can't do. And it puts you at a structural disadvantage if you're a smaller business or you're a startup. Um, so that's pretty powerful. I'm really excited about the idea that we put chatbots in front of our documentation for, you know, 
for any kind of code project. Like I'd love the idea that I could interact with the, you know, I don't know, the PyTorch agent that will help me answer questions about PyTorch and why I'm getting certain errors and knows the documentation really well and can help direct me to the right pages or just gives me the answers. That would be super cool. Like, you know, think of interactive Stack Overflow where you get answers right away to your questions and you don't have to feel embarrassed about asking a question that may have been asked before. Right. That's amazing. So there's a, you know, it. I think if I can give you one big thought that I think defines me and my view of all this, the answer is balance. Mm. You know, is AI going to have a huge impact on the world? Yeah. Is it going to kill us all? No. Um, you know, should you use GPT-4 or a custom model? You're going to use both. Um, you know, mm. are AI models going to replace businesses, replace websites? No. But are they going to be a key part of how we interact with a lot of different services? Yeah, I think so. Um, but mm -hmm. the answer is always somewhere in between. And I, I think one of the biggest problems in our field right now is people are, people love to jump to extremes one way or the other. They love to have strong views. It is in our best interest sometimes. It helps you raise funding. It helps you get hype and build your profile and sell your product. But it's not honest. And I think in many ways we're misleading people on how great or terrible or both AI is. It's not great or terrible, but it's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. We, we learned from a futurist that the, the key is to predict as many possible futures as you can. That way you can always look smart, I suppose, and then you can also kind of steer towards the best one. And it's easier to be oh, right. I, prefer to, I yeah. prefer to look smart now and say that I'm not going to predict it because people think I'm really smart today yeah. and they never hold it against me in the future. Right. Yeah. <laughs> got to hedge so, your bets. So if we look at, at a company that's got, you know, mounds of documents, right? Uh, let's say a huge knowledge repository uh, and... We're probably going to assume that it's probably not the the best curated, you know, uh, collection of documents and and information. Um, is that the kind of data that you're talking about that that a mixologist would feed into the into the um, into the model and and if they fed it into a vector DB, does that help prepare it for the model? So they're sort of, as you said, like try it here, try it there, then train it in the model. If that doesn't work, does it actually move them forward on that um, and, and make it fairly easy, an easy like sort of baby step? So it's a, it's a complicated question. I think, you know, part of it is that data quality does vary enormously. So and the and it's hard to have a good intuition for what data is really going to lead to a good model and what data isn't. So the easiest answer is to try. Try it again. The mini cupcakes. Start right. small and try a lot of things before you go and you know burn your whole cake mix on one thing. Um, now putting it into a vector DB isn't really going to help you train, but what it will help with it'll help with a couple of things. First, you can try it just to see if you know existing model can even take advantage of the data at all. Get a little bit of signal. I think the coolest part of a vector DB is actually that it tells you things about the relationships between your data points. It can tell you if you have a bunch of data points that are really outliers. Outliers aren't good or bad. Sometimes outliers are capturing something rare. Sometimes they are just complete garbage. But it gives you, you know, a way to understand how your data relates to each other. Are there big clusters of data? Are documents that you think are similar treated as similar by the vector DB? And that can sometimes help you to make better choices about your data set. So, you know, data preparation is a bit of an art. We have a lot of tools at Mosaic and kind of some guides to help people get through it and, and make good decisions. But it's, you know, it is still tricky. And I think our science is new on data. Um, at the end of the day, it's not the sexiest problem. 
And if you're a researcher, would you rather go and train like the super duper new transformer? Or would you rather like produce a cleaned up version of Wikipedia with a few methods that helped you? <laughs> like, you know, personally, I'd rather produce a cleaned up version of Wikipedia. That's going to have more impact. Um, yeah. But for an academic who's trying to get published or trying to build a reputation, I get it. Like the academic system is going to incentivize you to make the super duper transformer and tell people it's the next big thing. Yeah. Um, so in many ways, our, our science of understanding what data is important and why is incredibly primitive. We don't know a lot. So I think a lot of people don't realize that that like there's huge variation in how much, how long it takes to train and, and the um, different sets. And that when you're talking about training a custom set, we're not talking about it taking six weeks or three weeks or you know, a massive five, you know, $5 million in, in, in GPU spend and electricity. Like a lot of the, a lot can be done with a little, I guess, is the, is the, is the, oh, I, right? I think a, a lot, a hell of a lot can be done with a little. Look at our friends at Replit. They used our stuff. They trained a 3 billion parameter code model that was state of the art. They did it in three days. Right. It doesn't yeah. take a lot. Like as, with good tools, if you're kind of careful and, you know, you you go into it and you're willing to kind of, you know, you're willing to learn a little bit along the way, three days and they were at state of the art. Mm. Um, that's, to me, that was just mind blowing. I didn't think, you know, we would pull it off just because it's a hard thing to do. But, you know, at this point, yeah, I guess the cake mix is working pretty well. Um, <laughs> they did a fantastic job with their data. We gave them all the tools they needed to, you know, to shine. But three days is all it took. Um, it's not that, you know, it's not that expensive and it doesn't take that long. Right. I think that's kind of, people think of the cost of training these models and they think it's in the, you know, the millions or the hundreds of thousands. Mm -hmm. It can be a, you know, it can be a $10,000 undertaking. That's still expensive, you know, for you or me. But if you're a company, that's really cheap. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are a lot of opportunities to experiment too, right? I think I heard you mention uh, in another podcast that you could, you know, if you wanted to, you could just, take a huge amount of company data and in like giant, I guess would be like the last chapter of Ulysses form and, and just throw it in there and see what it, see what it kicks back. Like you can play around a bit, right? Oh yeah. And I think it's all like the, I don't know, this is a science at the end of the day, you know, I was learn I was taught to, you know, be a computer scientist and write programs and prove theorems and all that other stuff they taught us in school and, you know, do the running time of algorithms at the end of the day, I'm being a scientist. I feel like I'm doing physics or biology. I've got this weird little creature and I want to understand how it behaves. If I, you know, turn up the temperature or turn down the temperature or give it this food or that food, or, you know, you know, give it more sleep or less sleep or what have you, and try to understand what this thing is and how it behaves. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to kind of all go in with a bit of a child's mind and kind of be curious and open-minded and, you know, run some really simple experiments and say, oh, when I do this to it, it does that. When I do this right. to it, it does that. And, you know, there's not always a clean, predictable correspondence between A and B yet, but it's cheap enough to run the experiments that, you know, I really think this is putting the science in data science. Like, yeah. you know, I don't know if data science was a bit of a, a buzzword before, but now any data scientist who's playing with this stuff really has to be a scientist. Hmm. I think that's fun. Like, I love being a scientist. It's, right. it's like being back in third grade, you know, mixing yeah. baking soda and vinegar or what have you, like, <laughs> you know, putting Mentos and Diet Coke, depending on, you know how much trouble you wanted to cause. Like yeah. it's like that yeah. all over again, except now you get, you know, chatbots out the other end. That's super cool. Yeah. Why do you think it is that it's not the, the, the why the big players are not just dominating? 
you know. Um, Who says they aren't? Well, I mean, in the in the sense that they're when you look at the amount of resources that they have, right? Um, you know, th this came out of like you said, a small team, right? In in OpenAI, um, you know why? Why is it that the, that so much is happening outside of those walls? Um, it's the usual startup thing. At a startup, you're willing to take risks to stay in business. At a big company, you know, you have, you know, it's, what is it, the innovator's dilemma? Like, you know, at a big company, you have to be willing to disrupt yourself. Mm -hmm. That's really difficult. Um, that's, a, that's a tough thing to do. Yeah. Um, you have to be willing to bet a lot on something that's pretty risky. I have a ton of respect personally for Mark Zuckerberg because he bet the farm on VR. Mm -hmm. It didn't end up working out, or at least it hasn't worked out yet. But he did bet the farm on it. That's he cool. realized where that his legacy businesses weren't going to be around forever. And he took a big risk and a big bet on what he thought the future was. Mm -hmm. That's a really scary thing to do. Imagine if Google had done that after the Transformer paper came out. Right. They'd be a very different company. Look at Microsoft and the bet they put on OpenAI. Yeah. That was a risky, expensive thing to do, and that could have really made them look yeah. bad. Instead, they look like geniuses. Yeah. Um, and the only difference between Microsoft and Facebook is that Microsoft happened to get lucky and place the right bet, and Facebook happened to yeah. be unlucky and place a bet on something that was harder to do. So, you know... But yeah. I think we should have equal respect for both. Yeah, yeah. It's more that I'm surprised, I guess, because at one time, um, I think you you look at you know Google in in more of a conservative mode, and their stock price is going up. Then all of a sudden, you know, ChatGPT and 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 so for not taking risks, now they're getting punished, right? Like feedback loop, right? Negative feedback loop. Then they release. Uh, their version and oh, stock price is going up. So we're we're maybe seeing the markets rewarding risk, um, and maybe taking a shift in in re instead of rewarding conservative sort of wealth preservation management men mentalities. And this was something uh, we were just talking about in the last couple of podcasts, where companies maybe have to shift how they think to. To taking these chances like you said this is an experiment right you you, you can't know so how does how, you know given that companies are you know tend to fund things with high predictability how you know how do you how do you shift that thinking um, within a company as you're trying to convince folks to fund something that's more experimental and or do you think that you know, the market's going to take care of that and the feedback loop. And as we see more companies get rewarded for taking chances, you know, it'll just take care of itself. That's a great question. I think back, like I've, I spent a bunch of time at Google Brain. I spent some time at Facebook AI Research. I think this is something Google is generally phenomenally good at. Like there's been so much innovation that's come out of Google over the decades. It's an incredible place. I think earlier on, Google was really good at exploiting that. Like, look at Gmail or Maps. Like, these were all crazy side projects that ended up, you know, completely blowing up. Um, and I think lately Google hasn't really exploited the cool things like Bird or Transformer that have come out. I want to thank you. This was awesome. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we really appreciate you joining us. We had a yeah. good time. All right, thanks again for hanging out with us right here on Invisible Machines. Thank you, as always, to the team at UX Magazine, especially Kate Timchenko, 
the marketing team at OneReach AI, uh, Elias Parker and Natalie Budziak in particular work very hard to make this podcast great, as does Michael Litvinoff, our video editor. Please subscribe to UX Magazine wherever you get your podcasts so that you can hear new episodes as soon as they come out. If you want to watch new episodes, and I recommend you do, the, the video feeds are really pretty amazing, uh, follow the Invisible Machines YouTube channel. And uh, I think that's all I have for you this week. So let's go ahead and look forward to next week when we will connect again right here on Invisible Machines. Mm -hmm.